0: to myself
1: welcome back to the coaching Kernan podcast this is dave d'agostino your co-host and i'm with my hall of fame co-host kevin kernan this is episode 82 real voices of the game we've got a great guest for you today Uh, Very, very experienced in TV and radio and has done a phenomenal job of really matching his vocation and profession with his passion. And we'll get into that later in the show as as we bring Mike on. But Mike Kozer is our guest today, host of Lost Ballparks podcast. I believe season four is starting January 4th. But before we get to Mike, uh, Kevin, I know we're not going to be doing the panel of experts today. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of let our audience know they get used to it every week to see what's caught your eye this week in baseball. World Series past The Veterans Committee just announced their you know players that they're going to be voting on. What's caught your eye this week?
2: Yeah, a lot going on, including the Yankees ridiculous press conference. And I wrote about that on Ball Nine the other yes. day. Um, you can go there. Um, I co- I call it uh, basically talking turkey because it's just gobble gobble gobble, same stuff. So so um, we'll see if the Yankees wake up. I don't know if they will. I thought it was a pretty good World Series. Um, I may address this later in the week. The pitching changes were just ludicrous throughout the playoffs. Uh, pick any team; they made some mistakes. The Hall of Fame—very uh, interesting. We'll see where the rubber meets the road with the Hall of Fame because we know you know Clemens and Bonds are on, and uh, with the committee and that committee. It depends who's how that committee is stacked. Who's on that committee? There's certain guys that will not let them in. And there's certain guys that will let them in. So that'll be an interesting thing. And we'll know, I think we'll know about the winter meeting. So uh, yeah, there's a lot going on, but I'm really excited to talk to Mike too. It's uh, it's, this is, this is, um, you know, we all love, we all go back and think about ballparks that we, we, we once knew and visited and me, I, you know, because of my job, I've been lucky enough to go to so many ballparks, you know, and a lot of ballparks aren't there. And, and as we'll talk, it's not just Major League Parks. So I'll let you get right into it with Mike.
1: Yeah. And I, I love this guest also. I love all our guests, but Mike brings to our podcast today what you bring to it every day, what I appreciate about you. And, you know, you've had such a long, illustrious career as a as a writer and your passion for baseball and sports in general. And you bring that to our show every week. So I thought this is going to be a great treat for our, our audience today. But uh, Mike your 25 years in TV and radio as I mentioned, connected that profession with his passion, uh, today and his podcast, I'd recommend it. it comes out every Wednesday. Um, I've been listening to it since we started ours. Kevin, uh, turned me on to it and it's really helped me grow and helping work this podcast. But Mike takes you back to, to ballparks, uh, lost ballparks through the eyes of the players, the broadcaster, the fans, and they get to share firsthand accounts of what it was like to spend a summer afternoon at a ballpark. Like we all did as kids. And, um, you know, to me, and I think again, you'll get this if you listen to Mike's podcast. Ballparks keep us connected. I mean, not just to the history, but to the people that we love—the ones who took us to games. Uh, you know, bought us uh, our first baseball hat, our first baseball glove, baseball cards. Um, you know, just just a tremendous experience going back. And the other portion that that's connected that that I want to really—I don't really know much about. I want to hope Mike will share with us today is beautiful paintings uh, and artwork on the the website as well. And it gives you another added dimension to that nostalgia with the ballpark and, and the former players. And with that, I want to w- welcome uh, Mike Kozier. Mike, welcome to the show today.
0: Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for, uh, for having me on. It's fun.
1: Yeah. With, with your podcast now, it comes out every Wednesday. Was I right in reading that we're coming up on season four and it's, that season four starts January 4th? It does, yeah. So, yeah. looking forward
0: to that. This is kind of like our off season um, between now and and the first of the year, but we'll be uh, back up and running January fourth, which is a Wednesday,
1: yeah. And I know you recommended that John Miller was your your highest rated episode, season one, episode six. Um, I had a question with with the way because we go through this with our podcast too. It's both. It's probably a selfish question, but um, in selecting the person in the stadium, you know, I guess the chicken or the egg question: what comes first, the person or the stadium? What's your methodology? And choosing
0: a subject? Actually, I'm looking for storytellers. Um, and so I I try to find guys who have either played uh, broadcasters or, I mean, I think in, was it season one that we had Nancy Faust, longtime organist for the Chicago White Sox, many of those years spent at Comiskey. Um, and, and what was great about that particular episode, she was actually sitting at her organ and playing songs like she would have uh, during a game. So, yeah, I I start with just I'm looking for someone I'm looking for someone who can tell a great story uh, and specifically then about their ballpark experience. There have been a few. I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys, but there there have been a few of podcasts that I've recorded. that I have just not aired uh, because it just wasn't great storytelling. For some reason, it just didn't click. And, you know, it was just a lot of yes and no answers. And and, uh, yeah, so I'm just looking for people. Rico Petroselli, longtime. Red Sox uh, player, shortstop, was on in season three, episode five, I think, talking about the, that great 67 team and, of course, 75. And he is such a passionate, animated storyteller. And so to me, guys like him, Bobby Richardson, who was on the episode before, longtime Yankee, um, those guys, can they can spend yarns. And so I could listen to them talk for days. That's, so. That's what I, I'm looking for first: someone who's got a great story, and then hopefully we're mixing it up, and you're hearing about all the different kinds of ballparks that these guys played in and and broadcast from.
1: No, I I, I agree with you on that too. We haven't had one yet that we we haven't aired. Knock on wood. But uh, well, we, Kevin, don't,
2: we, we don't have as high standards as you, Mike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. You want to add something?
2: Yeah. No, I think one of the things, and I I know people have been uh want want to listen to this thing, but. a ballpark has a beating heart and it's a place of it's, you know, it's, it's really a place that we love. Uh, even if it's not a great ballpark, I mean, um, I'm not going to go through the, uh, you know, your favorite ballpark, that kind of stuff, obviously, you know, where you grew up is huge and stuff like that. But, but I think there's a connection and I think that's what you're mainly about. We, as a society now, I think we lose our connections with our past so easily now. Um, Tell me about somebody, some of the people that really hit home with you with some of the stories because I remember when I did the story for Ball nine, I believe in January uh, you know you you had comments from people that you know kind of almost bring a tear to your eye and it's it doesn't have to be a ball player it it could be or the Nancy Faust was a great 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 uh great idea, but those kind of uh, connections, the connections that you make and hear about they're just so special uh, explain some of that to us yeah so
0: coming up in season 4 one of the guests that we'll have on is uh Roy Face who was uh, a pitcher on that uh Pittsburgh Pirates team that won the 1960 World Series and i what i'm looking for when we do these podcasts is tell me something that I don't already know or that everybody who's listening already knows, right? Like we know that Mazeroski has that great walk off home run to win the world series, but what, what do I not know about that experience? And Roy face said, and he'll, he'll talk about this in the episode. It's already been recorded that, um, after, uh, everybody left the clubhouse, they all, most of the players went to a hotel and, and continued to celebrate and had a party, but Mazeroski and his wife, um, Went into Shenley Park. And for those who don't know, Shenley Park is this beautiful park that's on the other side of the outfield wall, or was on the other side of the outfield wall at Forbes Field. And, uh, and he went there and, and with his wife and sat on a park bench for an hour and just sort of reflected on, wow, the magnitude of what just happened. And I was at, um, the for, again, for those who don't know, the outfield, much of the outfield wall that was there at Forbes Field is still on the University of Pittsburgh campus. They did a great job preserving that. I was there this last summer and I had a chance to think about, wow, OK, so here is where the home run was hit. And on the other side of the wall, this is where Mazarowski sat with his wife. And, and what must that conversation have been? Um, so those those are important. Like we talk about that connection. And, uh, and and telling me something that I don't know and helping me r- relive a little piece of history that I wasn't alive for at the time.
2: Yeah, I, I remember talking to, uh, you know, uh, Maz and his wife, this was probably might have been 20 some years ago, did a story on that. And I remember him telling me that story and I was blown away by it because, I mean, uh, could you imagine a player today, you know, uh, you know, Bryce Harper after his home run to beat the Padres, hate to bring it up because uh, I know you're a Padres fan, but you know imagine Bryce just hanging out uh, beyond left left field or right field or anything like after that. so that that's such a great story and i think I think that's another connection though, getting back to my theme here is that these players seem to have they were human beings more. I mean they they had human emotions and stuff like that and and uh, and that all comes through in your podcast, which is not an easy trick. And uh, I do want to tell people you have such a great voice and I, I think you're a, a voiceover artist as well. So so this this is a pro podcast from A to Z. Well, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. And um, yeah, I
0: think you're right about, about the players. Uh, so in season one, episode 10, Dave Parker was on and I'd, I'd forgotten or maybe I didn't realize that uh, Parker grew up just a few blocks away from Crosley Field in Cincinnati. And he after games used to, him and his buddies used to go in the parking lot and play stickball and wait for the players to come out. And so at Crosley Field, the clubhouses were actually behind the grandstand a little bit, I think to the left. And so players would walk through the stands, (laughs) you know, pass right amongst the fans, walking through them, then down the steps out, uh, you know, through the parking lot into the clubhouse. And these kids like Dave Parker um, would wait for them to come out of the clubhouse and get into their cars. There was no security fence, so he t- he remembers uh, spending time with Veda Penson and Frank Robinson. I think it was Frank Robinson who popped open his trunk of his T-bird, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, pulled out some gloves and some balls and gave them to Dave Parker and his friend. I mean, that's something that he'll never he'll never forget. And it and like you said that that just does not happen today. And you know, nor could it.
1: Wow. Yeah. Of all the ballparks you you've learned about through these guys, which one to you is missing? What's that? I guess that white whale that you haven't you hadn't heard about that you're, you're hoping to.
0: Um,
1: wow, we've covered a lot of. Like Carl Erskine was on our
0: very first podcast, and I, I, what I loved about that one is that he, we got a chance in one fell swoop to hear about the polo grounds about Ebbets field and about the original configuration of Yankee stadium. <laughs> and I felt like, Oh my gosh, like, where do we go from here? That was episode one. <laughs> and uh, I mean, cause for me, I don't know about you guys, but I look back at those old ballparks and people have asked me like, which, which ballpark would you, if you could go back in time and see it would be the, the polo grounds and Ebbets field would be right at the top of the list. I mean, the polo grounds had crazy dimensions shaped like a bathtub, obviously 279 or something down left field line, 258, I think, down right. And then just mammoth, 480, almost 500 to center. The clubhouses uh, were in center field. And um, I can't remember who, if it was Rico Petrucelli or maybe it was, oh, it was Billy Williams, uh, longtime Chicago Cub who was on in season three, who said that when he played at the polo grounds, he remembered that he had to really hold on to his hat, sometimes put in his back pocket as he walked up, up those clubhouse steps in center field, because fans would try to lean over and grab their cap uh, and, you know, and take off. Um, but yeah, the polo grounds, man, I just, I wish I could, wish I could go back in time and see that. Um, that was a, that's a, what an incredible ballpark.
2: And another great uh, aspect of your podcast is when you, um, it's not just major league parks. So you, you'll, you'll address minor league parks and, you know, little things like where, you know, things uh, like where Derek Jeter played in Columbus, uh, Coop, Cooper Field or something, I think it's called. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, and, and one of the things I do whenever I travel, um, I always try to stop at, you know, if there's a minor league ballpark or an old minor league ballpark in the area, it's always fun to stop and see. And I, I did that recently when I was in Little Falls, New York, and got to see Veterans Memorial Park where the Mets used to have a, where Doc Gooden pitched, uh, you know, it was like a rookie league. And, and it was amazing to see some of those parks and, and the sights and the the, the the sight lines are incredible. And I think that's why people fell in love with the game as well. And uh, you know that that's missing to some degree too. And 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 the minor league parks and the little parks to me they're just as as much fun as talking about the old parks. Have you? Uh, did you find that to be true, or, or do you do you rather do major league parks? Oh no, I love.
0: I listen. If someone, if there's a good story surrounding a minor league park, you can't help but romanticize and think about. Wow, who who was? Uh, who were some of the guys who came through that minor league park who played there? You know, you go back to the day when when players in the off season would barnstorm, right? They would go town to yes. town, and and they would play in a lot of these teeny tiny little parks. So there's wow. so much history, in in uh, places like Rickwood. Um, and, uh, yeah, for me, like my very first major league game that I ever went to was at a minor league park. It was at Tinker Field in Orlando. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah. Where the twins were, were spring training. And so, and, and you have to be a twins fan to know these names, but I grew up watching John Castino and Rob Wilfong and, um, Bombo Rivera and Gary Gaetti and uh, it would just wait out. And by the way, at those small parks, too, you, you had access to players. You yes. know, you could go right up against the fence line. No security guard was pushing you back. You would wait for them outside of the clubhouse. So it had a feel of like what Crosley Field would have been like in the day in terms of access to players.
2: Yeah, I, and, uh, you know, I remember that Lowe's Falls Park. It, it actually had a um, – the press box was actually a log cabin. You know, it was made out of logs. You know, So that's how old that thing was. Uh, so you must come across some great finds. And and you did have one of those finds. Tell us about the uh, Word Campanella sign.
0: Oh, yeah. So this is crazy. So there was uh, uh, a lady who follows Lost Ballparks. And I think it was her aunt and uncle who worked at Ebbets Field way back in the day. And they had recently passed away and they gave her uh, a bunch of their material possessions. Included in that was this giant Ebbets Field photo from the 1940s. And so she had it for a while. And one day she's like, this frame is kind of getting old and decrepit. And I I just need to replace the frame. So she went to replace the frame and she discovered behind that old yellowing photograph of Ebbets Field was a hand-painted Roy Campanella MVP sign. And uh, it turns out that it came from uh, Ebbets Field. And I believe it was the 53 MVP that Campanella won. After he won the MVP, they put it on display in the rotunda at Ebbets Field with this hand-painted sign next to it. Um, And there's – yeah, I love the fact that now you can go back and look at the – day. was it called the Brooklyn Eagle? Yeah. the yeah, newspaper I, yeah, in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. You can go back and look at that, that newspaper article where it's actually talking about the sign. So anyway, she has this sign and she says, just real casually, she goes, I don't know what to do with this sign. I don't want this photograph or this sign. Do you know anybody who would want it? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, I would love it. So I, I paid it for her, paid, paid her for it. And, uh, it now, uh, sits, uh, above the booth and, um, where I actually do the podcast from. But yeah, that that would—I was so excited to to hear about that, and then actually to discover the article, the newspaper article from the Brooklyn Eagle, confirming that that had in fact been at the uh, at Ebbets Field in the rotunda.
1: Do you have the article as well? I do. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. That's uh, when I think of ballparks. As again, as I was listening to your podcast, taking me back in time, it was always my dad and I, um, whether it was minor league parks or major league parks. Were there? Was there a particular story with your podcast? I know they're all wonderful. It's like asking you to pick your favorite child, but where there was a a connection that you weren't expecting, uh, either with a player and a a sibling or a parent that just kind of took you back a little bit.
0: Um, I think Larry Boa. So Larry Boa was on in season two, episode six, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I don't know if you guys realize this. Maybe you do, Kevin. You know, you've been around baseball for years, but he didn't make his high school team. He tried out three years in a row, uh, ends up then trying out for his local community college team only because this local community college coach had maybe seen him play somewhere along the line and said, yeah, why don't you come out and play? And Larry's like, look, I don't know if you know it, but how am I going to play in college? I didn't even make my high school team. He ends up trying for the, out for that community college team and somehow makes the team. And a year later, a scout sees him play, signs him for like $2,000, um, And a few years removed from not even making his high school team, he's the starting shortstop for the Philadelphia Phillies. It's a crazy story, and he details in that particular episode how much his dad, who I think was a minor league, made it all the way to maybe AAA, um, and I think he might have coached some too. Talks about how his dad really took the time after work to hit him ground ball after ground ball, and that that resonates with me. My dad had carpal tunnel syndrome, and despite that, he would hit me and throw, uh, hit me balls and play catch, even though I know he was in pain for hours. And, uh, yeah, so I got a little teary even listening to Larry retell that story. And I, I just thought how incredible that this undersized player, um, who people told him that he would never amount to anything like his high school coach literally said, you're too small. Like you can't, you know, you're not going to make this team. You're not going to play. And, uh, he goes from that to doing what he did with the Phillies.
1: He's never left. He's still there. He was actually a guest on our show, uh, Jeff Fry's podcast on our network and phenomenal, phenomenal baseball mind. I mean, you know, like you said, he, he got a seat at the table. He's never left. He's still in the game. So. Yeah. yeah, And these guys, these players love to talk about this kind
2: of stuff, right? You really hit a nerve with them.
0: Well, yeah. Like, uh, so we mentioned earlier about Billy Williams who um, is in the hall of fame, longtime Chicago cub and uh, hearing him talk about, um, the prejudice and the racism that he faced when he was first coming up. There was a point in his career when he was still in the minor leagues where he said, uh, I-, "I can't do this. I'm I- I'm going back home to Alabama." I- so he convinced his roommate to drive him to the bus station. They took a uh, either bus or train, took it back home, and the team <laughs> was like, "Where's?" where's Billy and his roommate said you know he he left he he just he doesn't want to do this anymore and i think it was Satchel page that drove out there to uh to convince him to come back but yeah hearing him talk about that story just brings it to life when he said they would take a uh you know uh, the team bus town to town and that he and one or two other players would have to sit on the bus while the white players would go in and eat dinner it's just it's we can't even grasp that today it makes no sense to us but it happened. And it's, you know, those, those stories need to be told.
2: Yeah. I remember Roy White telling me similar stuff. Um, and, and actually th- this, uh, I may be getting a story a little bit wrong, but he was, um, when he was, was first signed and everything, he, um, he, he you know, one, one of the black players, and this was like, uh, in Florida and one of the black players said, Hey Roy, how come you're not at our hotel? And, turns out he was in quote unquote the white hotel because when the yankees signed him they didn't really know any background about about him including you know that he was black and uh so he he wound up and he, he said at the time he said you know he's, he's he was he didn't really have really dark features uh so so he he actually was in the white hotel for a few weeks and then had to get shipped to the other hotel so imagine putting up with all that and like you say getting the uh Get, you know, having not to be able to go into a restaurant and get food, and, and 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 all the little things. Well, yeah, like they wouldn't even let them uh, have their uniform laundered at right. the same place. Right. It's it's just crazy, and, and it's great to hear those stories. And, and you can tell it in your voice. There's you know the zest you have to tell those stories. And there's also the story, the human stories of um, just uh, you know a father and a son going to a ballpark. And, and you talk about spending those few hours together with your dad, that that's part of this whole equation as well, right?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, for me, so I, I grew up going to, uh, after we moved from Orlando, we went back to Ohio where I was born. And so I would go to games at Municipal Stadium with my dad. And, uh, you know, he was a quiet guy, as it seems like most dads from that era were. and But I knew that we had a, a hour drive to Cleveland from Mansfield, Ohio, and that we were going to be at the, at the ballpark for... You know, at least two or three hours, and then another hour back, and I had my dad's undivided attention, and and to me, there was nothing better than an afternoon under the sun in those red, uh, sun faded wood chipped seats at uh, at Municipal Stadium, talking baseball with my dad.
2: Well, I used to uh, go to uh, Yankee Stadium with my dad, and this was the old original Yankee Stadium, um, and and he was a policeman, so he would get nice tickets every once in a while, you know, box seats. And things like that. And it was always special. You know, you maybe uh, on the way there. We'd stop for Chinese food and this and that. And then uh, and another thing I remember is um, walking off the field at Yankee Stadium. You used to be able to walk out through center field. So you'd actually be on the field where the players were after a game. So those kind of memories, uh, fans must hit you, hit you up with some of those individual type things uh, that really made it special and, and left that imprint that made him a baseball fan for life.
0: Yeah, and I will tell folks if if you're gonna follow Lost Ballparks, do it on Facebook or Instagram. We're also on Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram is where you'll find the most comments and the great threads where I look, I just I'm sort of uh, hey, here's a photograph of of this particular ballpark from let's say 1956. Uh, and then people start filling in the gaps. And the stories that people leave in the comments are are among the most fascinating. So League Park is where the Indians played um, in Cleveland off of, I think, East 66th and Lexington um, prior to moving to Municipal Stadium. And uh, this woman, you know, saw that we posted a photograph on Facebook. This was years ago. And she said she grew up Uh, A block or two away from the ballpark and she remembers as a kid like her parents sending her to her bedroom Maybe she was little. Hey, you got to go take a nap. You need to go do your homework She didn't want to do that. So she would sit on her bed roll up the window and listen to the sounds from the game, and she knew that when there, she would hear a cheer of the crowd, that something great happened. Um, you know, someone hit a home run or got a base hit, and she would try to match up the box score the next day from the time that she heard the, you know, the roar of the crowd. And so again, those kinds of things aren't being told, aren't being shared. You can't find that in a book, and you can't find that on in TV or radio interviews anymore. It doesn't seem like. And uh, so to me, I just, that's been the greatest part of this whole Lost Ballparks journey is hearing personal, individual stories from fans who were at these old ballparks.
2: Yeah, all you hear now about is spin rate and things like that. You you tell real human stories. So go ahead, Dave.
1: No, I was going to kind of comment on the same thing about the, uh, if you, as you continue on with the podcast and we get into the next generation, the story is going to be quite different with experiences. So we hope you keep it going. Hey, I I fell in love with the paintings. I don't mean to, to take this conversation another direction, but the paintings on your your website are amazing. And and as I read about their original paintings by you, where does art come into your world? When when did that happen, and how does that become a part of this? So maybe five or six years ago, my father in
0: law was diagnosed with uh, a pretty horrific disease, and. um I'll just say with some form of Parkinson's and I knew that I didn't, we didn't, we may we, not have a long time with him. And so he's a long time artist and just a really uh, incredible artist. And I, I, one day on a lark, I kind of went over to his house and I said, just wanting to spend time with him. I said, why don't you, will you teach me how to paint? And yeah. so we sat down with some paintbrushes and it started like that. This was maybe f- six, seven years ago. And I, I you know, he painted landscapes and different things like that. But I was interested in ballparks and baseball. And so I started painting players and um, started doing Ebbets Field and uh, Wrigley Field and things like that. And it gave me a, a, this connection to my father-in-law, who I love tremendously, and then um, also helped me or, you know, allowed me to do something um, with something that I love just as much uh, in baseball.
1: What, and what is his name?
0: His name's David Bishke. Did, yeah. the
1: two, did the two passions start together—the podcast and the paintings—or did one start before the other?
0: So I start the actual—I um, started the Facebook page back in 2012, and then paintings maybe a few years after that, and then the podcast started in January of 2022.
1: Who motivated you to do that?
0: So I went out to, to actually to lunch with a couple of friends of mine, um, Kevin Presley and Steve Nelson, and. They said, "Hey, we you know we enjoy face we enjoy the Facebook page and um, we like the comments and the photographs and the architectural details that you post." But they're like, "Hey, you, you know you've got a studio in your house. Have you ever thought about uh, doing a podcast?" And I hadn't to that point. But my both of those guys said to me, "I bet you there are a lot of stories to be told, and if you could get in touch somehow with these players and these broadcasters and people who had um, roles at at you know and like grounds crew members and." Uh, clubhouse managers. I bet that you would find some fascinating stories to tell. Maybe you could mix that in with a little archival audio. And I, so that's actually how it started. Uh, and they they actually kept pushing me because, you know, we had that lunch and then I didn't do anything with it. And like two or three months later, went back out to lunch. They're like, no, you really should do something with this. And uh, man, I'm glad they did. I'm glad they pushed. Because if you would have told me when I was a kid that I one day would would be able to interview guys that I grew up uh, watching like Dave Parker and Dale Murphy and Andre Dawson. And, you know, I watched Bob Costas on TV from the time I was little to be able to talk with him. Well, I mean, that was, was just a thrill of a lifetime.
2: Is there a network now where guys, because, you know, some guys have been on the podcast, so they 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 speak, uh, they put a good word in for you to get them or how, how difficult yeah. is it to uh, get, get those guests? Well, it's funny
0: because I th- I thought it would help more than maybe it actually has. I posted something, I can't remember what it was, about the podcast and Rod Carew chimed in. Oh, I know what it was. I was trying to get Fergie, Ferguson Jenkins on. And I, I said, you know, Fergie would love to have you on. And Rod Carew said, Oh, it's a great podcast. You should totally do it. And I oh, thought, Oh, it's gonna happen. And then it didn't. It just fell flat <laughs> flat on its face. By the way, I've had some interesting I don't know if you guys have had a similar experience, but there's some guys, look, if they were nice guys you know, when they were playing, they're probably nice guys now. And if they weren't, or they were a little edgy, they're probably maybe even a little edgier than now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so I had gotten George Brett's phone number and, uh, but I thought it was his cell phone, not his home number. And so I just reached out and <laughs> bad idea, bad idea. He was not, he was not thrilled that I was calling him at home. And I apologized. And I said, and we have actually have a couple of mutual friends. Like he obviously knows Jeff Idelson from the hall of fame, as do I. And I just said, look, you can call him now. He will vouch for me. And uh, he just was not, through. you know, again, he's not someone who wants to, to uh, be interviewed. The other guy that um, the, I, I was shocked when I, I got a call, this was maybe two months ago, and it was from Sandy Koufax. And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the greatest moment of my life. Sandy Koufax is calling to tell me he's going to do the podcast. And so I pick up the phone and I said, hi, this is Mike. He said, hi, this is Sandy. I go, I know. And he says, I just wanted to call and tell you that I'm not going to be able to do the podcast. I'm not interested in doing the
2: podcast. That's that's Uh, Sandy.
0: Yeah, right. For those who don't know, he's an intensely private guy. I mean, you could probably count on one hand the number of radio or television interviews he's done in the last 40 years. But I thought it was sweet that he called just to tell me I'm not going to be able to do it. But I wish you the best of luck. And I thought, well, you didn't need to call, but man, I'm glad you did. I got yeah, to talk to that, Sandy Cooper.
2: Yeah, believe me, I've been there with all these, a lot of these guys, and uh, those are great stories. And uh, and and you now, and sometimes you find out about their personalities without the interview, and and and, and that, that that makes it more interesting. And the uh, but but guys like Sandy, like you said, are so you know. I would get when I needed to talk to Sandy, I would talk to Terry Collins because Terry and Sandy are close um, uh, and, and guy, the uh, longtime uh, pitching coach with the Mets in the minor leagues and setting them up. So so Sandy, Sandy, just a just a little sidetrack here, but Sandy loves to go if you ever get him on. Cause he may, may, you know, may, may crack that one day and go. Uh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> he, uh, he loves high school football and high school, okay. uh, especially high school basketball. He'll, they'll go to the high school basketball tournaments in Florida all the time. So he'll talk more about that than he will about, you know, world series. And, uh, so you really, you find out about their personalities. And like I always say, well, they're ball players And I always had a favorite line when, when players, and I, to this day, I still use it as a joke, but it's kind of true, if I ever wanted to get a player to talk to me in a clubhouse, all you have to do is walk up to them and say, man, you're getting screwed. And, you know, they, they immediately look at you and they go, you, tell me about it. And then they go into how they're getting screwed. So it's, it's just in their nature. And once they open up, they're tremendous people. And, you, and you, you, you've gotten some guys to open up tremendously. Another point I want to make is that, because I don't want to let you go without touching this, done a great job, too, with these old photographs. And you make it clear, you know, it doesn't have to be a professional photograph. You, you want memorable photographs.
0: Yeah. So I, I would rather have a photograph from someone who went with their dad at Crosley Field or Forbes Field. Maybe it's a little bit blurry, taken from an interesting angle that maybe I haven't seen before, um, rather than a professional photograph. yeah, Because that's that's that person's experience. And they can, in addition to sending me the photograph, they can tell me the story behind
2: it. Yeah and, and what tell tell me about the the Harley Davidson uh wasn't there a uh, had a uh, in Milwaukee didn't they p- bring in the pitcher with a Harley Davidson or something at some point
0: Oh uh where oh shoot where was that uh well I know I will say uh, the Mule, I don't remember the Harley-Davidson, but I know that...
2: Harley, I heard there was a Harley-Davidson, uh, like uh, a, a three-wheeler type thing that they used to bring in the pitches, But tell me about the Mule. That's even more interesting. <laughs> that was it.
0: So at Kansas City's Municipal Stadium, um, Charlie Finley had all kinds of crazy things. In addition to Harvey the Rabbit would come out behind home plate, this little mechanical rabbit would rise up yeah. and give the umpire balls. And there was uh, a button that he could press near home plate that would was supposed to... Uh, whisk off all the dirt. That didn't work out quite so well. There was a petting zoo at Kansas City's municipal stadium. And I'm trying to remember exactly who it was that told me that maybe because it seems like it was in the last season. It might have been Jim Cott who was there and pitching and um the a mule took all the players out to <laughs> to their position <laughs> for the for the first inning. And I think it was Cott who said, uh, no, I'm not I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to walk out. But everybody else was taken to their position on a mule. You know, again, only Charlie Fenley.
2: Did you uh, Have you ever interviewed Jack McKeon? I haven't. I would love to. Oh, yeah. We'll hook you up with that one because I talked to Jack yesterday. And he has more ballparks, more stories. He's getting inducted into New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. So maybe in a few weeks he'd be around to talk about it. But some of the things, you know, some of the things that he, you know, he, he I remember in, uh, this might have been Missoula, Montana. They played at a ballpark, and he was always a hustling guy down first base. Um, and to, to get the crowd psyched up, he, he figured out one year that there was a telephone pole there with a the light pole. So he would run past first base, outer safe, and continue with his cleats up the pole like a, a telephone lineman climbing up the pole. And, uh, of course, he did the other thing, which I thought was great. He, he, he was the first guy to wire a pitcher with uh, he he had a communications device sewn in, uh, into their inside pocket, and he would tell them when to throw the first, uh, give them pitching signals, and and he had it all approved. So he would show up at bo- visiting ballparks. He got a batting helmet, and he got a car antenna, like a car you know a car car place, and he, he would just he taped the uh, or glued the antenna to the helmet, and they became the. Uh, Basically, the uh, you know from out of this world uh, broadcasting type thing. So, so Jack has a million stories. He, he'll be a great oh guest for you. And, yeah, I would love uh, to have him on. Yeah, and the uh, you know Lane Field. Did you have you ever done anything on Lane Field? That was one of my favorite parks because I spent so many years in San Diego.
0: Yeah. So they they've got a little um, section down by the waterfront now where you can kind of see where with how Lane Field was set up um, down. I think now near the Star of India and. Um, yep. The railroad, the train depot. Um, yeah, I, we've, we posted a few photos on that. Um, I, man, it would be great to have someone on who actually played there. I don't know.
2: Well, I have a guy, Bill Swank, who is a, a historian. I'll, I'll make sure you get him, too. He's another one. And, and Bill was a uh, longtime um, per, uh, parole officer. So he has stories
1: beyond baseball. So just uh, be great for your fans. Yeah, love that. Great. Okay. As you, you know, this has been very well thought out, what you've done on both sides, the the podcast and the paintings, uh, and none of it premeditated. Um, I love this story. Where do you hope this goes? I,
0: You know, I would love to be able to continue to get um, guests on. I've got uh, a, a sort of a wish list that I've got up and in, in just outside of the podcast booth where I've got a number of players and, and man, I, there are some on there. So last year about this time, um, Vince Coley started following Lost Ballparks on Instagram. And so then I was able to connect with him and talk about Ebbett's Field and then talk about having him on the podcast. And right about the time that that was gonna happen, his health kind of took a turn for the worse. Um, and we I never got the chance to. Man, I was so bummed. Um, but there are a whole bunch of guys that that I've got up on the on the wish list that that I would continue to love to be able to talk with those. And um yeah. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of stories to tell and, and I'm hopeful that we can, we can land those guys. Yeah, as you guys know, it's, it's not easy getting someone to come on a, a podcast, radio interview. They might be like five or 10 minutes and it's hard to get them to do that, but they might acquiesce and say, yeah, I'll do that. But a podcast is a little bit different.
1: It's a big, it's a big commitment. I, as, as I was looking at the paintings, I was kind of smiling when you were telling the George Brett story. Did you did you get him to buy a painting? I saw the George Brett painting was sold. Was
0: it? (laughs) No, it's it it definitely was not him. Man, he is every bit as ornery as that that uh, bad incident, the pine tar incident back at Yankee Stadium. Like if you thought, I wonder if he's similar to what that video was like. uh, You know, because everybody's seen that incident. The the answer is yes. He's he's still (laughs) the same old George Brett.
2: That's Um, that's what makes him so great. (laughs) Yeah, he's a character.
1: Now, I, I've been lucky. I haven't had those conversations. I have the good fortune of Kevin introducing me to a lot of people to bring on the show. And uh, when he get, when he introduces you, as he mentioned some of those names, I get to start the game on third base and I didn't hit a triple. Believe me. So I'm <laughs> fortunate to have him with me here. Uh, Kevin, did you want to lead into the... the? Uh-
2: yeah, before we get to the last question, I I,
1: I remember you telling me
2: uh, in the story we did that there was nothing sadder than watching a ballpark right away. And I think you were talking about Tiger Stadium. So I think that's the beauty of what you're doing. Even if the stadiums do ride away, you try to keep them alive. But just speak to that, please.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look back at at what happened those final years at Tiger Stadium, and, and um, there's so many photographs that document uh, the state of disrepair that it was in, even Comiskey Park. And you just wonder, man, could more have been done to uh, preserve those ballpark? Would it be different today? If we if, if that had to happen today, if it had made it to this point, would they have done more to preserve it in the way that they have preserved Fenway? And I don't know the answer to that, but I wish that there could have been some part that would have been saved and rescued. That That's why I love uh, the outfield ball at Forbes field. I mean, you can take your little radio right. or cassette player or whatever or your phone and listen to the final game of the 1960 world series and imagine what it was like. You you get the feel for what it was like standing there. And I wish that there was part, and I know that they, the police athletic league in Detroit um, rebuilt a field on the same, uh you know, f- uh, footprint as tiger stadium. And I think the flagpole is still there, but th- there's not much else. Um, and so I I just wish that there there's more that could have been done with that, and also Crosley Field. I do love the fact that it, the, you know the polo grounds to get down from Coogan's Bluff, you had to take the John T. Brush stairway. I like the fact that that's still there. They restored that in the last few years, um, so that gives you a sense of what it was like to walk from Coogan's Bluff into the, into the polo grounds. Uh, but my hope is that going forward we'll we'll do more to preserve. These these ballparks, and if we move on to a different ballpark, that maybe a piece of it somehow can uh, remain.
2: That's such a great thought because I, it's one of my, it's one of the saddest things, like you said. And and uh, you know we did a great job, not a great job, but the country finally came around to uh, saving some architecture, you know, here and there, which really made a difference. And of course, when you save these things and whatever you repurpose them to be, in the long run you're probably making money off it because, you know, people live in the area. It it brings life to the area. So that's a great thought that we should do more to save the ball. And I'll give you a perfect example. I thought the Yankees did a terrible job with Yankee Stadium. Oh, 100% agree.
0: Why
2: why couldn't they save a portion of that? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Come on. It's like – and I think – um, I just thought of this, and uh, you know, I, you may not, you may not have. I know Reggie brought the original Yankee Stadium, uh, well, not the original, but when it was the Yankee Stadium blue letters, and I think he sold them. But do you ever, in your in your travels, do you find things that were lost, and besides, you know, individual parts of ballparks, or, or stories about something that was saved from a ballpark that's kind of interesting?
0: Well, yeah, I love that. So, like, at uh, the Polo Grounds, the light standards from the Polo Grounds are now over, um, Phoenix Municipal Stadium. Where I think I think it's Arizona State's baseball team that used to be a yeah. minor league ballpark, but I so I was there a couple years ago, and again it's just fun. I know it sounds strange, but to just stand next to these light poles and think, okay, wow, Willie Mays played under these light standards, and you know to be able to think about all the games that happened at the Polo Grounds and know that these light standards were there for that. Um, Seal Stadium in San Francisco, I think the light standards from there maybe some of the seats went up to Cheney Stadium, and I, th- I want to say Tacoma if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So yeah, I, I love when things like that can be repurposed. Um, I'm pretty sure that the foul poles from Memorial Stadium in Baltimore are at Camden. Um, yeah. And those are great. Those are great ways to preserve uh, pieces of the past. I Listen, if my wife would kill me, but I would love to have stadium seats from all of these old ballparks. They're not cheap. I, I was on eBay the other day and there was a set of three Chairs from uh, Ebbets Field, selling for twenty five thousand dollars.
2: Oh my gosh! Yeah,
0: <laughs> but listen, I for me, like I would the thing I would like to have the most is a figural seat, one of those end seats from the Polo Grounds with the NY. Oh yes. um, yeah, and those aren't cheap either. That, I mean, those are like seventy five hundred to ten thousand. But well, you
2: have to get on Andy Strasburg someday too, because Andy's got stories, and he was uh, with the Padres for many years. But he was a collector before there were collectors, and I remember him telling me a story that he went by Yankee Stadium when they were doing the renovations, and he was just a young kid then, like in his vehicle. It might have been a Volkswagen Beetle or something like that, and 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 they were just like throwing those seats away. And and uh, yeah. you know, you know, he he grabbed a bunch and had them sticking out of his car when he drove back home. So, those are the amazing things. And actually, I did a. I think there was a, the Milwaukee Braves had a, a Harley Davidson topper scooter that they would bring pitchers in with. So could you imagine if you could, uh, if if somebody had, had the foresight to save something like that and uh, it, it would be just a great thing. So. Uh,
0: yeah. One of my favorite episodes too is from season two, uh, episode three, David Kessler, who was the Bat Boy, visiting team Bat Boy uh, at Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia. And Uh, For those who were at the final game at Connie Mack Stadium, it was mayhem. People were early innings. People were uh, dismantling seats and taking pieces of the ballpark out of the ballpark and stuffing them into their trunk. Um, That episode's it's pretty crazy. At one point, David Kessler even I think says to either the umpire or the Phillies manager, "We should consider calling this game because it's it's going to get crazy."
2: I can't believe that would happen in Philly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, shocking.
2: Yeah, here's the last question. We we do with everyone, uh, all our guests, ball players, uh, front office, uh, any 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 part of the game, because uh, we get such unique answers. And you can take a second to think about it, but um, it's a real simple question. So just uh, give us your your gut answer, and it's always an interesting answer. Being a ball player, being a ball player, what does that mean to you, from your perspective? Being a ball player. Wow. Uh,
0: I think being able to do what you love, um, ultimately, and I tell my kids this, find something you're passionate about, hope that you're good at it and to do it for as long as you can. And for me, telling these stories on lost ballparks and the idea of being a ball player is, um, uh, you know, being able to use your God-given talent to do something that you love that makes other people happy that makes other people smile. And honestly, there can't be anything better than that.
1: That's awesome. Great answer. I think it's phenomenal. Mike, thank you so much for coming on today. And if you give us the cell phones of close relatives, we'll text message them that portion where you requested those eBay seats. See if they <laughs> get together and get them for you for Christmas. I thought that was a great plea, but thanks for coming on. It's episode 82, Real Voices of the Game. Your story is phenomenal, very unique with our podcast. And we're lucky to have you. Thanks again. And Kevin, thanks for making this happen with Mike. Uh, This is Real Voices of the Game, Coaching Kernan Podcast, and we'll see you next time.